Good morning. Somehow I'm still going to find a way to stutter through this and mess it all up. <laughs> but I think this is uh, one of those times that the Lord uses the fewest words to uh, get the most across. The sermon today comes from Romans 11, 30, chapter 11, verse 36. This is God's word. For him, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To be him glory forever. Amen. Thank you, Mo. I appreciate it. And good morning again to everybody. Glad you are here with us, especially if you're visiting with us this morning. I'm glad that you're here. I know it can be very difficult to go to any church and try it out, but especially one that is as young and new as ours, which on that note, by the way, today means we're six months old since we publicly launched. So yeah, an infant, we're crawling, I guess. Are we crawling, right? We're still in diapers though, all that kind of stuff. And uh, for most of that six months, uh, if you haven't been here with us, we've been looking at uh, the book of Romans. This is a wonderful place in the New Testament. It's a letter written by a man named Paul. And the reason we've been looking at that is because Paul is, is trying to get across to us the heart of what Christians believe and what Christians have always believed, which we call the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. And here this morning, we're going to just look at one verse like Mo read, because this verse kind of brings everything that we've been saying Everything that Paul's been saying about the good news uh, to its conclusion and to its, to its climax, if you will. Uh, we're going to take a break. As a side note, we're going to take a break uh, through the summer and look at the subject of prayer. We're going to start that next week. Really excited about digging into various stories and uh, the Lord's Prayer, uh, where Jesus teaches us how to pray throughout the summer. But we're going to come back to Romans chapters 12 through 16 when school starts again. But you're going to see when we get there, Paul really shifts his focus in chapters 12 and and following. He really stops talking so much about doctrine, and he starts talking about practical how to live it out into your life and all the various relationships that you have. But here in in verse 36, he's concluding all the doctrinal stuff, he says, all the teaching that he's been giving us about the gospel. And what I think he's doing is he's really showing us where the gospel should lead us all in our lives. The result that the gospel should have in everybody's life. We've been hinting at it the last couple of weeks, but this week it's going to be right out there on the table. The gospel gives us assurance about God, about who we are and who we are in God to transform us. And one of the first things that does is it leads us to be people who live a life of worship. That's what's out on the table this morning. The gospel always leads us to be people who live lives of worship. It's a little bit like this. Paul has been climbing up this mountain peak called the gospel. He's been scaling the heights of of the good news of who Jesus is and what he's done. And now, finally, at the end of chapter 11, he's reached the peak. And he hopes that you and I are there with him right on the summit, looking out over the vast expanse of all God's truth and all that he's doing to work in our lives. And his breath is taken away. And all he can do is just gush forth in praise from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever. Amen. I mean, what better response is there to standing on a mountain peak? I mean, no matter how breathless you are from climbing, like I am when I, if I ever climb a mountain, completely out of shape. But I'm also breathless because what I'm seeing is just amazing. And I absolutely can't contain myself. And as soon as I catch my breath, I'm going to say, wow, amazing, awesome. Those kinds of words are going to come to mind. The same thing is true about the gospel. Worship is the natural response. Now, when I say worship, I know what everybody thinks. When I say worship, you say music, right? You say church service, what we're just doing right now. And and that's partially true. 
It's partially true. You see, it is important. Absolutely a part of a life of worship is gathering together with God's people, hearing his word and responding to him in prayer and song and humbling our hearts before what God has to say. You cannot live a life of worship without that. But also, you can't do that right unless what we're doing here this morning is spilling over into the other parts of your life. Unless your entire life, in a sense, is being overwhelmed and overtaken with God so that your very heart, the direction of all that you do, all that you think and say, is moving in the direction of God. And Paul expresses that here in verse 36. He says, from him and through him and yeah, unto him, for him are all things. To him be the glory forever. In other words, the whole direction of our lives. This is what real worship is. Everything that I am is moving now towards God. Worship is living life unto God for him, for his glory all the time. The gospel leads us to that place. But I realize in order to get there, you've got to have some kind of assurance that what Paul's telling you, what he's been saying about the gospel is true. After all, Paul is a man who is absolutely certain that he has seen the face of God in Jesus Christ. He's certain that God has entered into his life and is working, and that assurance of the gospel is what makes it overflow in praise to God. I want to show you this morning that can be possible for you too, and that can be possible for me. If you look at your worship folder, you'll see that there are three things that we want to talk through out of this one verse. We're going to keep it real simple this morning. First, Paul is going to show us that the gospel gives us a reason to worship. In fact, he gives us the reason, the reason of all reasons to worship God. Second, we're going to see the gospel reveals to us the opposite of worship. What does anti-worship look like in our lives? And then finally, the gospel leads us into that life of worship that we see Paul displaying as he just bursts with praise from him, through him, and to him are all things. Uh, So first, uh, the gospel gives us a reason for worship. Notice there at the beginning of verse 36, there's the word for. And of course, that word implies what? Paul wants you, as you listen to him say, from him, through him, and to him are all things. He wants you to think about everything he's just said. Paul uses that word for to link you in your thoughts to the praise and the worship that's flowing out of him back to everything he's just expressed. And of course, we saw last week, what was it that he was expressing? He was expressing the depths of who God is revealed to us in the gospel. Paul said last week, oh, the depth of the riches and the wisdom and the knowledge of God. His ways or his his, uh, judgments are unsearchable and his ways are inscrutable. We can't even fully grasp and contain who God is as he's revealed in the gospel. In other words, one of the things that we have to notice right out of the gate is the only way to become a person who lives unto God is if you know God. And the only way to know God for sure is if you look at what he has shown you through history, which we believe as Christians he has done that supremely in the gospel of Jesus That he sent his son into the world. This is the essence of the gospel. That God himself came into this world, took on a human life, lived that human life so that you and I do not have to be in the dark about who God is. We can know him directly. We can, like Paul, actually in a way see God face to face, know him as a friend, talk to him, walk with him. And then the response of our life in worship is a personal response to a person that we actually know. Now, that's incredibly good news because, you see, knowing God requires him to make the first move, doesn't it? It requires it. I mean, in fact, it's not just true of God in this case. 
Knowing any of y'all requires that you make the first move because you're a person. You see, knowing an object or knowing an idea, which is the way some people approach God, and it's a wrong approach. God is more than an object. He's more than a thing. He's more than just an idea on a page in a book. He's a person, living, active. There are things he loves. There are things he hates. There are things he does. There are things he doesn't do. Unlike an object, you see a scientist goes out and, and, and studies all kinds of objects, you know, animals and trees and rivers and stars. And what they do is they go out and they observe them and they, they ask questions of those objects. But of course, the objects don't talk back. They have to just keep asking questions, running experiments, going into the lab, going back out to the field, taking samples, observing, observing. At every point along the way, when you get to know an object or a thing or an idea, you're in charge. You're the only one talking. You're the only one asking questions. But you see, when a person gets known, if I get to know you, it's not just me that gets to ask you questions and observe you. You have to respond back to me. And if you keep your mouth shut and you never say what's really in your heart, am I going to know you? Can I read minds? (laughs) Nobody can, right? The, The very definition of what it means to be a personal being is that in order to be known, you have to speak and you have to act so that other people can see it. That's why it's such great news that Jesus is not just an idea, but he really entered into time. He lived on this earth. He was a certain height. He was a certain weight. He lived in a certain place. He lived during a certain lifespan, one year to the next. He died under a certain ruler so that everybody in all history could access through the word written down exactly what God is like. So that you and I would not have to be in the dark. Well, you may say, well, but that's the problem that I have with Christianity, you see. That's the problem I have is that that God claims to be a loving God. I want to believe that God's a loving God, but how can he be loving and only reveal himself in just one way? Why does it have to be only through Jesus? I mean, if God is loving, after all, wouldn't he want us to come to him and get to know him in any way we choose? Just so long as we came to him, does he really care which path we take? And of course, right here, this is something that's very, very much at the heart of our culture. I was reading this week an interview with the the country singer Tim McGraw. I hope that you're also a fan like I am of Tim McGraw. This interview was was after a couple years ago. He uh, starred in, I think, maybe even helped make the movie called The Shack, which was based on a book about God. And, of course, the book and the movie both had a lot of controversy. Does the book, does the movie really show God as the Bible shows God? And that's for a different sermon, right? But in the interview, however, the person that was reading uh, or person that was interviewing Tim McGraw asked a brilliant question. They said, all this controversy about how your movie shows God, how do you respond to people that say the movie gets it wrong about God? And here's what Tim McGraw said. And I think it's the cry of the heart of so many people today. He said, look, we just don't know. I don't know. If I told you that I knew what God looked like and what God felt like, then I'd be telling you a story. I just don't think we know. I don't think we can know. God does manifest himself, herself, he said, or itself in any way that we need it, in a way that we can grab hold of, in a way that we can put our arms around. But at the end of the day, we just can't know which one's right. Can you resonate with Tim McGraw? Do you know somebody that resonates with Tim McGraw? Just groping out in the dark, you know, reaching out, trying to grab for truth about God and just really not being sure how it comes. Now, you might say, but God is loving. And so no matter what you end up concluding about God, 
No matter what religion you end up taking or whether you have no religion at all, at the end of the day, he's just going to embrace you, right? There's just going to be love, right? No, think about it. I understand that, that line of thinking, but think about where it leads. Does love and a disregard for facts about persons ever go together? Think about it. Can I say that I love my wife and then I go around t- telling lies about her? I go around describing her like she's not, but then I say, oh, but I love her. <laughs> Can she do that about me? Do you like for someone to enter into a relationship with you telling you lies about themselves? And keeping you in the dark about what they really think and feel, would you say that really is a loving relationship? You see, what Paul is saying, the reason he's able to burst in worship and say from him, through him, and to him are all things, is because God has once for all said, yes, I'm absolutely loving. I want to have a relationship with you. And with that comes this, you can't play fast and loose with the facts about me. You can't just make it up as you go. You can't go to the Build a God workshop and make your own God that you can keep in your house and it's very tame and he does what you want him to do and he, he you know, moves on command. You can't do that. What God says is I'm a God of love and to know me, you gotta really know me. And to know me, I'm gonna enter into this world and show you yes, only in one way, but that doesn't mean it's narrow because that way is brilliant, beautiful, as we just sang, Amazing. It's the way of Jesus Christ, God entering into the world, showing us everything that God is, showing us everything God is up to. Notice just a couple things that Paul says in verse 36 about God. It says he's, everything is from him, everything is through him, and therefore everything is to him. To him be the glory forever. In other words, because everything comes from him, because he's the source, because everything is through him, because he's the pathway, that everything has to take in order to be like it is, therefore, everybody ought to worship him. Everybody ought to live their lives completely to him. Not thinking life's all about me, but recognizing that he really is the beginning, middle, and end of everything that's ever existed. Notice, Notice the logic there. Of course it's logical. If everything started with God, if everything now is sustained by God, then of course everybody owes God praise. And the only way we can know that is that God entered into history, into real time, and he really spoke real words that we could understand. He did real acts that were historical and public, dying on a cross, coming to life from the grave, telling us the way that he, that he wanted us to live, showing us about his grace. And Paul is able to look out over that as he's explained it to us, and his heart cannot contain the praise. I mean, just think for a minute. I mean, those two prepositions, here's the English teacher in me coming out, The preposition from God, the preposition through God, those two things tell us two very different things about God that are extremely important, that come out of the gospel. Everything's from him, you see. In other words, God is the fountain of all things, gushing out of him. Nothing exists apart from him. And at the same time, just like a fountain, everything is flowing out. Nothing has to flow in. In other words, what we have is a God who isn't broke, What we have have is a God who is not needy. He did not create me and you because he had to have something that we had in order for him to be satisfied and fulfilled. He created as the outflow of his goodness. Just simply because he wanted to share. He wanted to share of himself with us. He wanted us to drink deeply and to become satisfied. 
to be people who really enjoy the life that he always enjoyed, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, forever and ever, before we ever existed, God was perfectly happy and enjoyed himself. And now he's created everything just to share. I mean, think about what that means. If God is needy, then he's no much better than we are. And we're walking around always thinking about how we're going to meet God's needs, about how we're going to meet God halfway and you know, do our part of the bargain. He's going to do his part. But if we have a God from whom is all things, we got a God who's not broke. He's got plenty to share and he wants to share. The very fact that we're sitting here today means God has shared. And he's sharing right now. And then think of the other word, through him. He's the path. He, he's the way that everything gets done. In other words, God is not disconnected or uninvolved with the world. It's not as if God, as the fountain, just let everything flow out and then turned around and ignored everything that went on afterwards. No, God is very much involved in our lives. God is tracking us down in every part of our personal stories. I love the, the image that one writer gives. God is the hound of heaven. That's based on, a, on an Old Testament prophecy where it talked about how God was a hunter or a fisherman going after his people. Now, that's, you know, that's both comforting and scary at the same time, right? <laughs> I mean, here we don't have a build a God, the kind of God that we can just say, I'll come to you, I'll set the terms, God. Okay, I want this much from you, but not anymore. I want to give you this much of me, but not anymore. No, here we have a God through whom are all things. He's approaching us with crazy speed. <laughs> He's approaching us, he's searching us out. Paul had said two verses earlier, we can't search out the ways of God, but here it's saying God can search us out. He can search our ways out, and he has. You see, that's what Jesus reveals. God came down to us. The God who sustains everything, who holds everything in place, is actively involved in your life. Do you believe that? Do you believe your story, how your life has gone up to this present moment, has been a result of God's involvement? Do you believe that God wants to be involved going forward? Do you believe that his involvement absolutely sustains and changes everything? You see, that's the reason for worship. That's the basis. That's the reason why all things are now to him. Because we don't have a God who's non-existent. We don't have a God who's needy. We don't have a God who's disconnected and hands off and kind of letting us figure it out on our own. Because of that, we can have hope. And hope fuels worship. And worship then turns around and feeds our hope. The reason why, I find this in my life, when I'm not living worshipfully, meaning I'm not living like it's all about God, I'm living like it's all about me, it's because in some way I'm hopeless. It's because in some way I have not listened to what the gospel said, to what God himself told me, all things are from me, all things are through me, therefore all things are to me. And so that's the first thing, the reason for worship. But secondly, the gospel reveals to us also the opposite of worship. Now, this is not you know, literally in the verse, verse 36, but it's implied by it. You see, because all that we've just said is very important. If from him and through him are all things, therefore it has to be true. Like it would, be, it would, it would make everything in the world absurd if all things weren't then to him. If everything didn't exist for his glory and honor, it would be absurd because it all came from him and it all gets sustained by him. And yet that's what the opposite of worship looks like. It looks like me and my life saying, okay, God, yeah, all things are from you. I'm glad you give me stuff. All things are through you. I'm glad that I can rely on you and lean on the everlasting arms, but all things are to me, right? <laughs> to me be glory forever. I mean, th this comes up all the time. 
You say, well, I've never said to me be glory forever. Well, of course you probably haven't said that, but I bet you said this. God, how are you going to make me happy? When are you going to deliver on the things I want in my life? Listen, I have an agenda, God, for my life. When are you going to, like, get the memo (laughs) and study my plan and then help me enact it? I mean, I know you've thought that way. I've thought that way. We've all thought that way, right? Instead of thinking all things are to you, my whole life is meant to honor you and give you credit because I wouldn't even be here without you. I wouldn't even be breathing right now without you. Instead, we've turned it back on ourselves. All credit to me. All glory to me. I want to be the one who who calls the shots and who makes life go in the way that I want. See, that is ultimately very, very dishonoring to God. I mean, all you got to do is think of your own response to being treated that way to know how dishonoring that is to God. I mean, what if there was something, maybe you've actually had this experience, there was someone in your life that you just poured into your time, your money, you know, all your abilities and talents, like your kids, right? (laughs) What if you poured everything into them and at the end of it, they refused to give you credit? They, They only gave themselves credit for it. They, they, t- they turned around maybe even and gave someone else credit for who didn't even do anything for them. How would you feel? Completely torn up with this sense of I've been dishonored, I have been abused, I've been misused. I don't know if I can keep on going with that person. Things are broken in this relationship because you've dishonored me. If we feel that way, when, we, when we're treated that way, how much so with God? Who really has poured out everything into our lives. You see, with human re- interactions, we can kind of debate who did that for you. Was it me or someone else? Maybe it was someone else. Maybe it was me. I'm not sure if I'm really responsible. And so it's not as big a deal when you don't give me credit. But God, there is no other way to like figure that one out. There's no other calculus where somebody else is responsible for you sitting here this morning. <laughs> like there's no other configuration where someone else is from him and through him are all things. And so when we take it onto ourselves, we're dishonoring God in the highest way. And that's what's been going on since our very first parents. I mean, in your mind, take a trip back to the Garden of Eden. Get back there with Adam and Eve. When the serpent came, remember what he said? He didn't start by saying, hey, Adam and Eve, just disobey God. Just forget about what God says. Come with me. He was more subtle than that, wasn't he? Where did he start? He started with, can you really trust God? Are you really sure that God is not just wanting you not to eat that because he knows you're going to get something good from it that he wants to withhold from you? Are you sure God's not trying to pull the wool over your eyes? Are you sure that good, a good life and happiness, true happiness, is really found with God? What, what if it's found apart from God? You see, he started to sow within their hearts that sense of, what if it is all about me? And the scripture says it simply. As they heard that, the seed took root, and it began to bear poisonous fruit. They looked at the tree, and they said, you know what? It does look good. Life does look better without God. God really may not be trustworthy. He really may be holding back on me. And so it says they took the fruit, and they ate it, and they brought us all into this giant dishonoring all throughout the world of God. And what Paul is saying here is is if the gospel leads us to what 36 is saying, to what this verse is saying, then our whole lives, when we say it's all about me, when we say, God, I'll, I'll accept you if you do what I want, then what we're doing is we're dishonoring God in the same way that Adam and Eve did. 
We're being utterly foolish, you see. Because again, the logic of it, from him, through him, therefore to him. If we say from him, through him, but not to him, we're completely defying the logic of the world. We're living life in a way that just, y'all, it simply doesn't work. It's like somebody trying to drive on the west, you know, east on the westbound lane on I-4. How good is that going to work? How long are you going to last going 90 the wrong way, everybody else coming 90 towards you? And that's the way the Bible describes human life. You and I are going against the grain. We were made for God. True happiness only comes by seeing that my life is meant to be for him, unto him. When I turn it around and make it about me, I'm driving against the flow of traffic. That's why I'm so exhausted. It's why I'm so miserable. It's why I'm so anxious. Because I've appointed myself servant and master of myself at the same time. <laughs> I'm master of myself because I'm always telling myself, you got to have this, you got to have that, you got to do this, you got to accomplish that in order to be somebody. In order to measure up, you got to do this, you got to do that. At the same time, I'm the servant of myself. I'm saying, yes, master, I'll go do what you tell me to do, but I can't. I'm always falling short. I'm never measuring up. And back and forth we go within my heart. Back and forth I go, never satisfied, running against head-on traffic coming 90 miles an hour, bound for a collision. But you see, it's not just foolish, it's also rebellious. Jesus told this story, which is amazing to illustrate this he said god is like a property owner he owned this piece of land this is the story of the world according to jesus he owned this piece of land and he decided i'm gonna i'm gonna make a vineyard i'm gonna plant a vineyard so that i can get some fruit and so he planted the vineyard he he dug a tower he dug a well he made all the all the barns and buildings he hired tenants to keep the vineyard and to, and to harvest the fruit and then he went away And it says, this is very cool from Jesus, this story. It says, when the owner came back to collect his fruit. Do you see that? You notice that word Jesus uses? It was his fruit. Because if it was from him, which it was, if it was through him, which it was, then it better, you better believe it's to him. He came to get his fruit. And what happened? Jesus says those wicked tenants, they beat the first servant who he sent. They threw the second one out. And then when he sent his own son to collect the fruit and to, and to negotiate and to persuade them, they killed him and threw him out of the vineyard and said, we don't want him to reign over us. We want to own the vineyard. And then Jesus just asks a simple question. It's brilliant. He says, what do you think the owner of the vineyard would do to those wicked tenants? What do you think? And the answer was, clear. I mean, Jesus said, he will bind them hand and foot. He will throw him out of his vineyard into outer darkness. And he will put somebody in charge who will give him his fruit in his season. That's scary. That's from Jesus, though. He says a worshipless life is not just a, well, you know, I like to do different things on Sundays. A worshipless worshipless life is not, well, you know, I'm busy. I've got a career to chase. It's not a simple thing. No, a worshipless life is me saying, God, I know you say it's all about you. I know I got everything from you, but, you know, I'm going to go my way. It's going to be all about me. It's self-worship. And not only is it running into head-on traffic, but it's running into the ultimate of all Mack trucks, which is the judgment of God. When he comes into this world and he's seeking his fruit from our lives. And so thank the Lord here at the end of, of this explanation of the gospel, Paul is saying, look, life can be different. Look at my life, Paul. I mean, it's as if Paul is saying, look at me. 
Look at what the gospel has done in me. Before, when I heard the gospel, I mean, just several years before he wrote this, when he heard the gospel, he hated it. He made the response, yeah, God, I know that's what you're saying about yourself, but I'm going to do it my way. In fact, violently so, I'm going to do it my way. But here, now that the gospel has taken root in his heart, he's able to look at what God says. He's able to hear from him and through him, and his heart is bursting with praise. You see, this is the third thing. The gospel is able to lead you into a life of true worship. How, How does it do that? Well, I want you to think about the gospel for a second as a revolution that Jesus brought into the world. That's what the gospel is. You know, sometimes we have a very tame view of the gospel. It's a nice person, Jesus, coming to talk to pretty nice people, but just trying to make them nicer. But when Jesus talks about the gospel, he uses words like, here's the kingdom. The kingdom is at hand. Enter the kingdom. See the kingdom. Put down your weapons and pick up new ones. Come into this new revolution that God is starting. And what was the revolution? The revolution was God came into the world through Jesus to turn people who are all about me into people who are all about God. He came into this world to make a change in my heart, a total 180 shift from just trying to always be a glory grabber, always being a credit grabber, trying to do everything my way and to get God on board, to now being somebody who humbly submits to what God wants to do. Now, did you know that for a long time in history, people thought that the universe revolved around the earth? Did y'all know that? For a long time, people thought that. Because, you know, you could, you could see why. At night, everything seems to rotate around us, right? We seem to be fixed And all the stars and sun and moon are all going around. And people thought that. And then in in the 1500s, this man named Nicholas Copernicus started talking some crazy talk. He says, y'all, it does not rotate around the earth. Actually, the earth is rotating around the sun. And everybody was shocked. I mean, it's kind of funny. They actually got mad at him and tried to kill him because he said that. But what did he do? He slowly started to try to explain he used his telescope. He used his math problems. He used all the theories, and he, he began to show people, no, look, if this is true, then therefore we can't be at the center. The sun has to be. Look at how the sun's moving. Look at how it moves at different times of the year in different places at different paces and all that kind of stuff. And everybody slowly started to see what he was saying to where now, do y'all know anybody who believes that everything revolves around the earth? I mean, there's, there's not many left, right, if there's any left. The revolution, they call it the Copernican revolution, has been very thorough. Well, what I'm saying is that Jesus came into the world to do that. And he's actually doing it. The same thing is happening. Jesus came into the world and he lived an absolutely revolutionary life so that other people might catch on to the revolution and join it. And that's what's happening. Are you catching on to the revolution? That's the question. Jesus came into the world revolutionary. He was born in a manger. That's where it started. I mean, we're six months or so away from Christmas, but it's just as important today. Jesus got his start. God became a baby. This baby did not have a room in the hospital to be born in. He was born in a barn. He was laid in a feeding trough, and he lived his whole life, the Bible says, as a man of sorrows acquainted with grief. Now, that's revolutionary. All throughout his life, Jesus said, look, why am I suffering so much? Why am I uh, choosing to, to live life the hard way? Because I'm doing everything for my Father's glory. Because it's not about me. 
Jesus is always saying that. It's not about me. I only see what I, I only do what I see my father doing. I only say what I hear him saying. My whole life is directed unto God because from him and through him are all things, to him are all things. And so Jesus was willing to live a life of temporary discomfort, temporary even unhappiness, you might say, unhappy circumstances, in order to get the fuller joy of living a human life the way it was supposed to be lived to the glory of God alone. And then that life that started in a manger went to the cross. And there you even see the revolution more mightily. Because here, someone who didn't deserve to die, died. Here, the unkillable God became killable and was put to death, not because he had ever dishonored God, but he was put to death as if he had dishonored God, and he went to the cross willingly. Jesus himself said it. He said, I do not, no one takes my life from me. I lay it down of my own accord. Why would he do that? The Bible says it was for the joy set before him. The revolution was alive in Jesus' heart. He, had no long, he was not living for himself. He was living for God. And so he was willing even to lay his life down if that was what the Father dialed up for him. He went to the cross. And he did so looking into what true happiness is. Not comfortable present circumstances, but knowing the smile of my heavenly Father knowing his glory. And then at the end of it all, the manger, the cross, then there was the crown. He was raised from the dead. And when he was raised from the dead, he went on high. The Bible said he took the highest position in the universe, which Jesus now sits on, if you can believe it. And all throughout time, what is Jesus doing? He's using his power, not not the way most people use their power, Not to just, you know, amass people against their will for himself and take over and destroy things. He's using his power to remake people, to persuade them, to woo them, to draw them by the cords of love. So that one day, all of creation under Jesus' mighty rule is going to be made a beautiful place where no sin and where no sorrow is, where no injustice or evil or war are anymore. Jesus is revolutionary in his use of power. He's going to use his power to lift up the weak and to put down the strong. He's going to use his power to be merciful to those who don't feel like they deserve mercy. And those that feel like they do deserve mercy, he's going to see them out. A revolution was started so that you and I could join it. And that's what God does through the Holy Spirit. You see, when when Jesus was living that perfect life of honor to God, that was so that you and I could be accepted on his credit. We've dishonored God. We don't deserve to be accepted. He honored God so that we could be. When he was dying on the cross, it was not because of his dishonor but ours so that we could be 100% forgiven. Believing in Jesus, Paul said, means there is no condemnation for you. God does not condemn you for the way that you and I have dishonored God. And when he rose from the dead, he did that so that he could give us his spirit. He puts his very self within us living in our hearts, enabling us to live this life of honor. Jesus was not just setting an example. This is what the revolutionary life looks like. Now go do it. No, he's setting an example and then coming to live inside of us to make us people who live the revolutionary life. And that's what worship is really all about. It's you and me being made into worshipers by God. It's the spirit invading, taking ourselves out of the center and putting God in the center. Where the rubber meets the road there is, think this morning, what do you believe God's number one goal should be in your life? I mean, really, what do you think God's number one goal, his number one objective should be for you? 
don't know about you, but me, if I'm honest, I often think in, in various ways it's my happiness. It's, it's that I would be comfortable. It's that I would get fulfillment and satisfaction here and now. But what this verse is telling us is that actually that is no road to true and lasting happiness. That God, rather than being concerned first with our present happiness, is concerned with our present holiness. Because you see, being holy, living the life of revolution that says, I'm unto you, God, and not unto myself, that's what's going to lead. Jesus shows us that leads to the truest happiness. For the joy set before him, he endured the cross. And so for us, when we endure a life, even if we suffer, that obeys God and listens to his voice, at the end of it, there's going to be a crown. At the end of it, we're going to be showered with all the blessing and the glories of God. And so here this morning, Paul's showing us, he's showing us what the gospel can do. Now, we've read all the way up to this point, all the way to chapter 11. We've seen all kinds of things about the gospel, but it really boils down to this. This morning, many of us may have many kinds of doubts. We may lack many kinds, we may have uncertainty in many forms. You may be here and say, I don't know if Jesus is real. I don't know if God is real. I don't know if I want to be a Christian because of Christians or because of church or whatever it is. Or you may be here and you think, I am a Christian, but I can never get past my own personal weakness and my own failings in the past or the present, or I'm afraid of the failings in the future. All those doubts can creep in and squeeze the life of worship out of us and turn us back in on ourselves. And here's what the gospel says. Cheer up. You're worse than you think you are. Just cheer up. Take it easy. You're worse than you think. God knows you through and through. He knows how you are. But then at the same time, cheer up. You're way more loved than you ever imagined. God has entered the world. And the revolution that God has brought is a revolution of his love for sinners like me and you. It's revolutionary to take somebody who dishonors me and then to embrace them. Usually someone who dishonors me, I want them out. Before, after I smack him, (laughs) right? But God, with us, when we dishonored him, the first thing he did, like the father to the prodigal son, embraces us in. That's why the Bible says in, in Colossians 3, when the word of Christ, when the gospel dwells richly in you, when you really know it's true, when you really see how much you're loved, that's when you're gonna sing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs and you will not be able to contain the joy. The worship will flow out of you. It's transforming to know that he loves you that much. I use this example a lot, but in in closing, I want to draw your attention, especially you kids in the room. Remember what happened in the movie Beauty and the Beast? That's a picture of the gospel. An ugly, unlovable guy, the beast. He doesn't even have a name. He's just beast. (laughs) He acts like a beast. He, He became that way because of his selfishness. There's no way anyone could possibly love him, right? And then enter beauty, who slowly but surely begins to love, 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 unconditionally embrace, teach, help. And slowly, like the song says, they were barely even friends, and then somebody bends unexpectedly. Something begins to bend in the heart of the beast. And then at the end, what happens? Complete transformation. He had been loved back into beauty. If you can believe it, that's exactly what Jesus came into the world to do for you. To love you back into beauty. And when you see that, when you stand on the mountain peak to see 
all the feats of his love, all the things he's done in love for you to win you back to beauty, you will not be able to contain the singing. For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Amen. Let's pray this morning. Father, we thank you for your grace and your kindness to us. Lord, that you've loved us back to beauty. You are loving us back to beauty. I know that's what I need, God. In my every day and every week as I think about serving and following you, one of the things that gets in the way, the thing that gets in the way is me. It's me wanting to turn my life around and make it about me somehow. And so, Father, I want to admit that to you, confess it to you as worshiplessness. And it comes from just a lack of understanding and belief in the gospel. And so, Lord, I pray that today, all the things we've said and all throughout the series so far, would just begin to wash over our hearts. That the word of Christ would not dwell in us cheaply. That it wouldn't be an afterthought. But that the word of Christ would dwell in us richly. And that, Lord, out of that would flow this life of worship where we cannot help but speak of you, where we cannot contain the joy that comes from being loved by one so great as you, so mighty as you. We love you and praise you in Jesus' name. Amen.